Always makes me feel good. The guy just wanted to stay and listen to me preach, and yet they drug him out of here. That's children's workers, I tell you. They're rough on our kids. We've had a good time of worship, have we not? Just a good reminder of, of what the Lord has done for us. I went, uh, in our prayer just a moment ago, um, the thought was referenced of who Jesus is. You know, Acts, it reminded me in Acts chapter 4, there Peter declared their salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. We have a great, great God. A good God. Amen? It's good to us. It reminds us of how good he is to us when we sing songs like that. And we are reminded how great of a salvation that we have in Jesus. We are reminded how amazing his grace is because we begin to see his grandeur. We begin to catch a glimpse of his glory. And we see that in light of and contrasted against our own sinfulness, our own uh, separateness from God and how uh, we, left to ourselves, are unholy and under the con- just condemnation of a holy God. And yet what we find in Scripture, what we find in the gospel is that God is the one who seeks out and saves the lost. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. We see in the gospel that Jesus forgives the sinner and welcomes him or her now as a son or daughter. Once we were an enemy, once we were an alien, once we were hostile, once we were separated, and now we've been embraced not just as a friend but as a son or daughter, adopted, co-heirs with Christ. So this morning uh, on this Lord's Day, we're going to step outside of our study in 2 Timothy and we're going to celebrate the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ by observing the Lord's Supper. And so I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. We're going to look at the story of Jacob, and you probably know the story is Jacob and the ladder, or Jacob's ladder. As you're turning there, let me just remind you a little bit about what the Lord's Supper is. We find this meal uh, described for us in the Synoptic Gospels, or better known as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the Gospels that give the description of what was taking place during this meal. It was a Passover meal that the Lord Jesus was celebrating and, and enjoying with his disciples there on the eve of, his, of the crucifixion. And during the meal, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he took the cup and he blessed it and he he commanded his disciples there to observe this meal, this new take on the Passover meal as a remembrance of what he was to do and would continue to do for them then and even now for us today. We find the fullest description of this meal in Luke chapter 22, which we will read uh, toward the end of the service when we are partaking of the elements. But the elements of the mill symbolized the body and they symbolized the blood which were to be bruised and which were to be shed for our forgiveness there on the cross. The mill memorialized the gracious, think about this, the gracious link to which God would go to redeem sinful people. That God himself would step out of heaven, step into this world, into time and space, take on human flesh and take on your sin and my sin and experience the full wrath of God. Upon himself. 
cross was the apex of God's activity among mankind, but it was by no means the inauguration of his activity. God's always been present with his people. God's always been working with his people. In fact, the Bible reveals that God has always been a very active and present presence in the lives of humanity. He's an up-close and personal God, and that is what I want us to, to see here in Genesis chapter 28, just one other picture of the closeness and the nearness of God to us. I mean, think about who God is as he's revealed to us in Scripture. He's vastly different than the gods found in other religious systems and beliefs. And let's just go ahead and say that the gods found in other religions and other systems are no gods at all. They're the teachings of demons, the Bible would tell us and lead us to believe. And yet they reveal something about certain gods, but it's in no comparison to the God that's revealed to us in this scripture. So the Bible here calls its readers to communion with God, to be in relationship with God, to commune with Him, to fellowship with Him, to speak and to have Him speak to you. This is not true of those in other religions, say of pantheism, who are told to meditate and sit and chant mantras and, and look inward within themselves. In the pantheistic worldview, such as Hinduism, Sikhism, there's only a capital I. And the reason there's only this capital I is because th those in this system don't really pray. They cannot pray because they are part of this ultimate reality. And so there is no concept of a transcendent God. There's no concept even of this I-U type thing. There's only this one big capital I, and so they look inward. There's union with this impersonal absolute, and that is the goal for them. It's not so with the Christian faith. There's communion with the living God. And, and dare I tell you this morning that the Judeo-Christian faith is the only combination of teaching that would call us to communion with the living God. It's the only one that's out there. All other religions may give you a path to be somewhat forgiven or hopefully make it into heaven, but you never are called into a relationship with God. The other major monotheistic or singular God-type religion that's out there, speaking of Islam, is this. In that system, you would never think of talking about communion with God. To even make that sort of statement is blasphemous to the Muslim. But in the Bible, what we discover is that God calls you and he calls me to break that bread. He calls us to drink that cup and to do it in remembrance of him. Remember Paul's words to the Colossians. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, God didn't just come and do some stuff for us to try to help us to get on the way. God came to us and says, I want you to be in me, and I want to be in you. I want to be your friend. I want you to be my son and daughter. I want us to commune together. And so what the Lord's Supper does for us is it symbolizes the inward presence of God that came and tabernacled in the world and offers to tabernacle with you and I even today. That's what this meal is all about. And so you and I as believers in Jesus, we are the temple of the living God, the Bible tells us. He is an up-close and personal God. He lives and dwells among his people. And this is beautifully portrayed in the story of Jacob and his dream. Look with me there. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10. The Bible says that Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. 
And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now let me remind us of what's happening in this passage here. You know Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, Father Abraham, as we probably learned back in Sunday school. Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish faith. Abraham, we know from Genesis 12 and and following, was the pagan who was living in Haran. And God one day just called him to himself. He called him to faith. And so he left Haran and he traveled west following God's command and promise. God told him to get up and leave and go to a place I've not even yet told you. And Abraham believed God and later we know that it was counted to him as righteousness. After several years, God gave Abraham a son. And Isaac to fulfill the promise that he would be the father of many nations. Isaac had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. They would become two nations, Edom and Israel. Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He is the son through whom the promise to Abraham would be lived out. But you would never believe it. You would never know it if you just simply looked at Jacob's life up to this point. If you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. The name Jacob means trickster. In fact, the Bible tells us that when he and Esau, his brother, was born, Esau came out first. Jacob was quickly on his heels. In fact, he was so quick on his heels, he was reaching out and grabbing his brother's heels as he came out of the womb. He was a trickster, and he lived up to his name. He tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright as the firstborn son. And then later on, he stole his blessing in a plan that was schemed out by his mother, Rebekah. Rebecca had heard the promise from God to say that the younger shall serve the older. And she didn't, I guess, understand how that was going to play itself out if Esau received the blessing. And so she tried to speed things up. And, and Jacob was right there with her agreeing to it. Yeah, Mom, we need to do this. And so they schemed a way to steal the blessing from his brother Esau. During his younger years, Jacob... As we read these chapters here, look nothing like his faithful grandfather, Abraham. In fact, nowhere do we see in Jacob's story, Jacob doing simple things like getting on his knees and praying. We don't see him on his face seeking God. We don't see him believing God or trusting in his word. In fact, even in the passage that we've read just a moment ago, nowhere is Jacob as he lays his head down, as he begins this journey to find a wife amongst his mother's family and relatives. We never see him asking for the favor of God, never asking for help, never asking for direction. He's simply living and going about his life as a secular, religious, worldly man. But we encounter here the beauty of the gospel in this story. Because even though Jacob is not seeking after God, it is God who is seeking after Jacob. And God finds him. 
It's not like he was lost. God knew where he was the whole time. But he allows certain circumstances to put you in a situation where you can have ears to hear and a heart to understand. And so he finds Jacob. God reveals himself to this religious pagan. And God gets up close and personal with Jacob. And here he extends an invitation for him to be in relationship with him. He, he, he says, I'm going to bless you just like I told Abraham, your grandfather, I was going to bless him. And that blessing carried on to Isaac. Now it's carrying on to you, Jacob. And through all of your sons that are going to come after you, the blessing of God is going to be there. Jacob, I want you to be in relationship with me. You see, what God did for Jacob, he still does for every one of us today. And the reason Jesus commanded us to observe the Lord's Supper is so that we would remember the communion that we enjoy with God, that he came to dwell with humanity. He came to do what was necessary to bring us into relationship with himself. And I want to share with us three things this morning out of this Genesis 28 text that helps us remember what we have in Christ We remember, firstly, God sought you when you were not seeking him. You remember that day when you came to know Christ? Remember what it was like? Some of you you were reading your Bible. It was some sort of devotion time for you. You grew up religious, maybe like sort of my story. And God broke into your your, your situation. He broke into your life and began to reveal the the gospel to you and your sinfulness, your need for Jesus. And and you were gloriously saved right there in your devotion time. Some of you were sitting in a church service where the gospel was preached. Some of you were at a crusade. Some of you were sitting across the table from someone else and they were sharing the gospel with you as a friend would. God was seeking you when you were not seeking him. You were doing your own thing. God came to you. That's what happens to Jacob here. He's doing his own thing. He's trying to make good for his life. He's following his his father's command to go and to find a wife and not to take one from the Philistines, but he's not seeking God. On this particular night, Jacob went to sleep just like he had every other night with no thought of God at all. He didn't spend time on his knees asking for help. He didn't spend time on his face asking for direction. He was not praying for favor in the search of this wife. I mean, think about what he's going to do here. This is a big task, looking for a proper wife. Some of you, I'm not even going to touch that. That would have been a funny joke. Man, I don't want these ladies to look at me with those razor eyes this morning. Probably the other way around. Knowing his story, knowing what Jacob would become, we read this story, we expect to see him praying. We expect to see him seeking God's face, don't you? Have you ever thought about that as you're reading the text? You, you know the end of the story. You know what Jacob becomes. You know how God blesses him and uses him. The 12 tribes come from him. You, you would expect him in this early time to be seeking God's face, but that's not the way it was. See, that's not true of any of us. No one seeks for God, Romans 3.11 tells us. You see, if you're in a relationship with God today, it was the Lord who sought you first. You were not seeking him. He came to you. It is God who seeks for you. This is the beauty of the gospel, that in the Lord's Supper today, as we remember and celebrate what Jesus has done for us, we remember that it was God who was seeking you and I out. As Luke 19.10 says, I said earlier, he came to seek and to save the lost. So the first thing we remember in the Lord's Supper is that God sought you when you were not seeking him. A second thing is this. God called you when you were not calling on him. Verse 13, God says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. 
Jacob wasn't calling on God. Jacob wasn't asking for the blessing. Jacob wasn't doing anything. He didn't say his prayers before he went to sleep. It was not declaring faith in God, but it was the Lord who called to Jacob. It was the Lord who reiterated the promise that was given to his grandfather Abraham. It was God who called Jacob to himself. And likewise, it is the same for you and I. You see, on that day, that Thursday in April of 1997, when I was going about my own business, it was the Lord who began to speak into my life and draw me to faith in Christ. 1 John 5, 12 was the verse they used where our discipleship group, this is our memory verse for, this, this, uh, the, for our next meeting in a week, for, week or so. I think it's a week from tomorrow. Uh, we memorize a verse every two weeks, and so this is the memory verse. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. God used that verse to call me to faith in Jesus Christ. I was doing my own thing, being religious, trying my own Christianity and making it work, but it was not working. I was not seeking after God. I was not calling on Him, but God began to call to me, and that was what happened in your life as well. He called you into a saving relationship. He called you into communion. He called you into fellowship with the living God. If you've never heard that call and you're just religious, let me just help you this morning. You are lost and on your way to hell. And on this Lord's Day, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the greatest thing you could do is say yes to Jesus and no to religion and be saved this morning. It's a miserable place to be when you think your religion's good enough. It's the f- most freeing thing in the world when you realize I can do nothing but receive what Jesus wants to offer me through his grace and through his mercy. There's a third thing to remember. Not only does God seek you when you are not seeking him, not only does God call you when you are not calling him, but thirdly, God blessed you when you were not deserving or did not deserve it. Goes on to say in verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In other words, I will never leave you. That's the promise of the blessing of God. You see, this is amazing grace. This is what he does for us. He seeks us out. He calls sinful people to himself, and he desires to bless us. Let's be honest. Salvation in and of itself is enough. Amen? To know that you're going to escape the just penalty of hell and experience all that heaven has for us, that's enough, right? To know that my eternal address has been changed from hell dweller to eternal heaven, I guess dweller, to make it feel right. That's enough. Salvation is great. Salvation is amazing. But that's not all that God wants to do for us. He goes above and beyond that, and he seeks to be a blessing to us. Why? Because he wants us to be a blessing to others. He removes our sin, but he goes a step further and blesses his people. Why is that? He's a good father. I love the song that we sing these days, that God is a good, good father. I enjoy as a father blessing my children, and God as a heavenly father enjoys blessing me, his child. But this blessing is never based upon merit. God isn't looking at Jacob here and saying, Jacob, you've lived a great life up to this point. Jacob, you were religious. I about fell off the stage. I knew that was going to happen one of these days. Some of you, you watch my feet every Sunday. You're thinking, how close is he going to get to the edge until he falls off? Today's the day. God wasn't looking at Jacob and saying, you made it, brother. You did it. 
You, you kept the fi- faith. You, you fought the good fight. You did all these things that Paul talks about in his life. So I'm going to bless you. That wasn't what it was based on at all. It was based simply in his grace. God desired to bless Jacob because he desired to bless Jacob. It was a fulfillment of a promise given to Abraham, but Abraham didn't merit it either. He was a pagan living on the backside of the wilderness. He's a good father. The blessing that he promises here to Jacob is based upon progeny. It's based upon family. See, God had called him into relationship with himself. He had made him a son in the faith. And so now the blessing is going to follow the family line. Today we are the offspring of God. We've been adopted into his family, Galatians 4 or 5 tells us. And so the blessing that God desires to give us is not based on merit. It's based upon progeny. I am a child of the living God. I am a co-heir with Christ, living and reigning with him. And so the blessing God desires to give me is based upon him being my father and me based upon being his son. In Abraham, God calls out and creates a people for himself so that he might bless them, that they would be a blessing to others. So in Christ, the same is happening. Christ, God is still calling people out. He's still creating a people for himself. He's still seeking to bless a people so that then we as Christ followers would be a blessing to all other people. The beauty of the gospel is that God is near. He is an up-close and personal father. This morning, I want you to know he's near to you. Whatever situation you find yourself today, he is near to you. He's an up-close and personal God. He sees you today. That's a frightening thing to know that God sees you, especially if you're not walking in the right way. If you're walking into guilty distance and you're trying to cover things up, it is frightening to think about that the all-seeing God sees you. It's also comforting to know that when you're hurting and you're struggling that all, and you feel like you're distant and you're on the backside of the wilderness, it's good to know that God sees you where you are, that you're not forgotten. God is close. He pays attention. How many times in our lives as human beings, as a father, as a mother, How many times do we forget and we fail to pay attention to what's going on in the lives of our children and grandchildren? How many times when you were a child did you look back at your parents and say, you weren't even watching, I did this and you missed it? That never happens with God. He's always paying attention to you. He always takes the crafts and the papers that you make. and he. I just picture him like this as this wonderful father that delights in everything his children do. And he puts them on a board and he rejoices in them. We don't do that. I get stuff here every Sunday. You know where it goes? Usually in the floorboard of my truck, and then I kind of kick it out later on. I don't have the uh, storage space that God has, (laughs) mentally or physically. God's good. He's still calling people out. He's still creating a people for himself. He still is a God who loves us. He's not aloof, he's not distant, he's not indifferent, he's not unapproachable. Through the cross, God has demonstrated his love and he's made a way to know him. And so this morning, as we move into a time of response, before we observe the Lord's Supper together, I've got some good news, I've got some bad news, and I've got some best news for you. If I was Mark Duffer, I'd say, which one do you want first? But I'm going to give you the bad news first. No, I'm going to take that back. Let's start with the good news. Sounds better. Good news is this. 
You were made by God. You were made for God. God created you to be in relationship with him. God delights in you, the Bible would tell us. He designed you to perfectly relate, to perfectly be in relationship with God. God created us to, to experience and enjoy something that nothing other, no other aspect of creation was created to enjoy. That is the good news, that God desires to know you. He's done everything possible, even in your creation, to make that happen. The bad news is this. That you're sinful and broken, and the brokenness comes from your sinfulness. See, that sinful nature that was in Adam there in the garden has been passed down to each one of us from generation to generation so that every single one of us and everyone who will come after us who is born into this world is born as a rebellious sinner in rebellion against the holy God. Your sin, the Bible tells us, and my sin is under, therefore, the just wrath of this holy God. Sin creates nothing but brokenness in our lives. That's the bad news. The good news is God designed you to be in a relationship with himself. The bad news is that your sinfulness has severed that relationship, but now there's some best news, and it comes from the gospel. The gospel declares that God the Son has paid the penalty for your sin. Romans 5, Romans 5, 8 says this, God shows his love. He demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He offered his life as a substitute for you and for me. He is our stand-in. He is our scapegoat. He came to this earth, God taking on human flesh, went to a cross. There, God the Father put the sins of humanity upon the shoulders of God the Son and exhausted his wrath that was meant for you and for me on Jesus. And Jesus experienced the separation. He experienced the punishment so that we could experience what he wants to give us forgiveness, and freedom from sin. That's the grace and mercy of the gospel. So that's the best news. The best news is that we can experience forgiveness of sin by placing our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and he gives us a choice to make. You remember there on Mount Calvary, as Jesus was nailed to a cross, he was nailed between two thieves, right? You remember those two thieves and what they said there on the cross? One reviled and made fun of Jesus, did what everyone else was doing as Jesus was being uh, crucified, taunting him. The other one says, will you remember me? Will you forgive me? The other one placed faith in Jesus. And so what we have there on, at Calvary were three propositions Three men hanging on a cross. One died in, in his sin, one died to his sin, and one died for sin. The one who died for sin was Jesus. The one who died to sin was the person who faithed into Jesus. The one who died in his sin was the one who rejected Jesus. This morning, sitting in this room, those three propositions are before all of us. I should say two of those propositions. We're either going to die in our sin or we're going to die to our sin. I don't know about you, but I made a decision a long time ago that I wanted to die to my sin, not in my sin. And so I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ many, many years ago. And so this morning, as I observe the Lord's Supper, like many of you, I do so because I'm rejoicing, I'm remembering, I am celebrating what this meal represents for me and for my life and for my eternity, eternal 
relationship with a holy God, free of sin, not because I was good enough, not because my good outweighed my bad, because that's never going to happen, but because Jesus is good, was good enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that you are enough for us. We thank you today that that you're a God who is up close and personal, that you're a God who desires to be in relationship with us. As we prepare our hearts and our minds to observe this supper this morning, this meal, I pray that we've been reminded of how great and good the gospel is, how wonderful of a sacrifice has been made for us, the, 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 the privilege to be able to call upon your name. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts and move us to worship and celebration. Lord, I pray for others that perhaps were, that today are like where Jacob was, living their life, maybe even religiously living their life, no thought whatsoever to being in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This morning, they're beginning to sense that you're seeking them. They're beginning to sense that you're calling out to them. And today, they need to answer and say, yes, Lord. And receive by faith forgiveness of sin and a new life. Lord, I pray that as we move into a time of response, that you would soften our hearts, open our ears, prepare our hearts for this meal. Lord, where there's sin in our lives, may we take it to the cross and lay it down, confess it and receive forgiveness. Whatever it may be, Lord, may we be able to take this meal in a worthy manner. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.